Today's program is brought to you by Heritage Foods USA, the nation's largest distributor of heritage breed pigs and turkeys. For more information, visit heritagefoodsusa.com. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network. We are a member-supported nonprofit food radio station. That means that every single thing we do, from broadcasting 35 weekly shows for free to bringing you exclusive content from sold-out food events across the country to offering scholarships to high school students, is only possible thanks to the support of our loyal members. And we want you to join the club. Become a member during our 2017 Summer Drive to get access to sweet swag and pledge your support to the world's only food radio station. Visit heritageradionetwork.org slash donate to become a member now. Good evening and welcome to Fumet About It on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm Mary Izet. I'm Chris Kuzmi. And I'm Rachel Jacobs. And we're your co-hosts through this weekly journey of all things fermented. Archived on Stitcher, iTunes, and right here on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Dot org. Dot org. Dot org. And if you go to HeritageRadioNetwork.org slash donate, you can become a member. We're going to talk more about that later, but your support is, is, is invaluable and to support this network. We are at episode 207. Seven. And it is Monday, June 19th. 19th. Oh, I got my numbers today. <laughs> uh, it's been a really great week. We we interviewed Dr. Pat McGovern last week, um, and that will air next week. But it was such a pleasure and an honor to uh, join him on a on a panel talking about ancient brews and promote his new book, Ancient Brews, which is really awesome, 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 awesome book with a lot of home brews and uh, and actually uh, recipes like food recipes uh, to accompany these. Ancient brews, ancient brews, yeah, tracing back to a, uh, the Egyptians and, that's and right. all sorts of interesting ancient cultures. And the cultures is the important is a really neat thing because oh, he yeah. also pairs it with with the clothing of the time yeah. and and like what kind of music would kind of be be listened to. I uh, just realized that so. cultures is a pun because uh, uh, all the yeast yeah. that were yeah, yeah. right. We're they wore get, clothes back then. They wore they did wear clothes. Yeah. Well, his his dream. Technology. One of his dreams, and I love this in the book, is uh, we'll we'll say whose voice that is a little later. But one of my favorite things about about uh, Pat McGovern, he talks about his ideal uh, re uh, rebrew. Uh, come on, re uh, replication. Thank you. Uh, replicate. He wants to make Dino Brew, like what people were really, really doing, like you know, sixty thousand years ago. Amazing. People stuff. were doing sixty. Okay. Yeah. Seems legit. Seems legit. Hominoids. Things. Okay. Mary, That's I've been waiting for you to finish the, your little, whatever you're looking at, Donna. And it's your turn now. Come on in. Anyway, so uh, we'll be dropping that episode sometime next uh, next week. So, guys, be sure to listen in. I said her a lot less in that one. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, let's do some local events and not so local. This Tuesday, tomorrow night, is Summerfest. Wheezy and Strong Rope Family Dinner is bringing two of our favorite people together, Jason Saylor and the Strong Rope Crew and Louise Leonard. 
um, for a dinner, seven to nine, seventy five dollars for four courses with beer pairings at Strong Road Brewery in Gowanus. And you said they're doing a vegetarian one yes, this time. Yes, and it's vegetarian. But I'm sure the menu will satisfy even meat lovers. Knowing Louise. Um, it's strongropebrewery.com for more info and tickets. There's two awesome events on Wednesday, this Wednesday, June 21st. There is a Foster Sundry and KCBC, Kings County Brewers Collective Beer and Cheese Tasting, here in Bushwick at KCBC. It's from 7 to 9. Tickets are 50 bucks. And if you just Google Foster and or KCBC Cheese, you will be able to find it. Um, also in Bushwick... The same day from 6 to 10 p.m. is a summer solstice party in the backyard of Honey's. That's also where Enlightenment Wine is located. Enlightenment Wines are located. So they're going to have an opulent barbecue in collaboration um, with some chefs. And uh, it's a family style feast and includes dinner, beer, and wine. So you can just Google, I think. Um, I found it on their email list. But Google Enlightenment Wines, you can figure it out. All right, next Tuesday, June 27th, I'm definitely going to be at this one. There's a beer and cheese pairing with Crown Finish Caves and Coney Island Brewery from 8 to 10 p.m. Those tickets are on Eventbrite. So if you guys are in New Mexico, uh, there's a fermentation festival on Saturday, June 24th. That's this Saturday in Albuquerque. Uh, For more information, you can just go to nmfermentationfest.com. So uh, we're, we'll be uh, announcing more uh, fermentation festivals that are going on around the country. Uh, we think it's uh, important for all locals to uh, go to check out your local fermentation communities, and these are good ways to see them. Speaking of uh, things going on, uh, July 9th, we are getting together. We are foraging in Prospect Park with uh, Wild Man Steve Brill, and we're really, really excited about this. Uh, this, Especially, I've, I've, you know, I've, I was excited about it before. I'm excited about it again, especially after talking to Dr. Pat about ancient brews and uh, doing gruits and, and using things other than hops to bitter your beers and using local, local flora to do that. So uh, we were getting together at 445 in Prospect Park. If you go to bitterandesters.com on the very front page, uh, you can find out more about that. Um, but basically, we're gonna we're gonna forage there, or talk about the local uh, what we can forage, and hopefully, uh, people will take it home and homebrew with it, and then we'll meet up at Fifth Hammer on August nineteenth when Stan Her- Hieronymus comes to town, uh, and we'll share some beers with him. Uh, he's got a, a new book, uh, also w- with experimental uh, ingredients, and so we're excited about that. I'm going to do one more quick event. Um, June 29th, that's next Thursday, at Flagship Brewing on Staten Island is the June meeting of the Women's Craft Beer Society. Two of my favorite ladies in in the beer world, Ann Riley and Heather McReynolds, will be teaching us all about styles. So dudes are welcome as well as women. That's going to start at 7 p.m. And Flagship is within walking distance of one of my favorite methods of transportation in New York City, the Staten the Island Ferry. ferry. <laughs> um, please it only note. goes one place, but it's great. Well, yes. two places, I guess. <laughs> it just goes back and forth all day long. Um, Staten Island Ferry is free, and it is BYOB, and you can pick up local beers at the Staten Island Ferry near Whitehall. All right. Well, episode 207. I'm very excited about today's show. Uh, dear friend uh, that we've been watching for a very long time. And, uh, well, just, just get right into it. Jason Sinan of, of Hudson, Hudson Valley, Valley Brewing and our friend Ayana. Hi, everybody. Hi. <laughs> so, um, first of all, who are you? Why are you? Uh, yeah, let's we'll say there. What's your brew story? What's your brew yeah. story? Yeah, uh, I'm Jason from Hudson Valley. Um, we focus on blended oak age sour farmhouse ales, uh, with a specific focus on native fermentation mm-hmm. and sort of sourcing 
microbes from our immediate surroundings. Much of the beer that we're fermenting is fermented with native microbes. Uh, so the, the beer that I brought today is like sort of... Uh, am I not talking? <laughs> we're having some microphone yeah. adjustment. We're sharing this microphone <laughs> between Ayanna and Jason today. So, so I, I brought a beer today. Uh, we call Valley Beer, and it's just like a, a blended sour farmhouse uh, fermented with native microbes. And you've been brewing like this for for a, a long time. Uh, we spoke the other day. I was very, when we ran into each other, I was excited because we had just had uh, 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 Jay Goodwin from the Red Barrel, and yeah. and you're like, wow, that's how I learned to brew from the Sour Hour. So you you've always been into this kind of beer. And how long have you been brewing? And where has your journey been up until this point? Before we get too into Hudson Valley itself. Yeah, um, I've been brewing for I think maybe five or six years now. I started with my friend Mike Raganeski, who is my brewing partner at Hudson Valley and also one of the owners, along with uh, our friend and the owner, John Anthony. Mm-hmm. Um, we, uh, yeah, me and Mike learned how to make beer on the internet, really, by listening to the Sour Hour and by uh, reading The Mad Fermentationist and many of the other blogs. Um, when we were brewing, when we started brewing, it was at a small brew pub in New Paltz where both of us went to school and um, we didn't really have a ton of resources as far as like hops were concerned. Um, so we early on had to reimagine what we would be making uh, when we started there. Cause you know, we were tinkering, tinkering with home homebrew, you know, recipes and stuff. And we we're like getting galaxy hops and all, all of this stuff like on a homebrew scale. And then mm-hmm. once we were at the, at the brew pub, yeah. we were like, Oh wait, you can't buy Galaxy hops. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I understand. How, now, um, how big a system was it? It was small, three barrel. Okay, but still, I mean, at that point, it's like you, we weren't able to get the the hops that we wanted to get, you right. know. And at the time, we were making mostly IPA. Um, right. So, you know, it's sort of reimagining what we would be able to make given our space, sour beer, which was something that we were interested in drinking, but never imagined we'd be able to make. Um, became sort of the focus of the project. And over time, we realized that uh, you don't have to be a scientist in order to make sour beer. Um, You can understand, like, sort of just as much as you need to in order to make the microbes act in the way that you want uh, without even needing really a microscope, you know? Um, and over time, those processes developed into where we are now at Hudson Valley Brewery, which focuses primarily on mixed culture fermentation, um, and but in a sort in a sort of way that makes each fermentation zone uh, its own uh, sort of module for four different types of fermentation characteristics. So uh, we have a fermentation zone that's focuses on acid production that's primarily in 500 liter fooders Mm -hmm. um will even though it's the same culture that's fermenting um the acid beer as the you know the funky barrel age stuff or the stuff that's presented more as like just farmhouse sales um we like just tweak certain control points in order to highlight the activity of like discrete microbes within that larger mixed culture. Right. Um, so one of the zones is uh, in, in 500 liter punch-ins. Typically we knock out 
pretty hot um, into them at like 100 degrees. You know? Shoot them primaries and um, hey, the, the punchins. A punchin is yeah. just a bigger barrel. Okay. Uh, it's like ours, I think, are 500 liter. Mm. Um, but um, yeah, so I'm sorry, what was your question? Do you guys want to? So you're, yeah. you're doing primary fermentation <laughs> sure, in, in the wood, in the punchin. Yeah, um, so. Do you, do you do any stainless steel, and then and then we do go we over? do have stainless. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I, I guess it just depends on what we're what the um, what we're looking for. Mm-hmm. Um, we do do mixed culture fermentation in in stainless, and a lot of times that's primarily for acid production. Sure. Um, so we'll you know uh, if we're if we're focusing on lactic acid bacteria, we will you know purge everything with. Um, with CO2 knockout really hot into a stainless tank at like 100 degrees and you end up getting beer that is super acidic within a relatively short period of time and and because you're purging everything with CO2 you're not dealing with weird off flavors butyric acid and shit like that Um, so a lot of times we'll get we'll get things started in stainless or in one of our two fooders we have um, two Italian red wine fooders uh, that we'll do, we'll sort of start primary fermentation in, um, and then either transfer to uh, the the series of punchins or into barrels. We have uh, like a, a pyramid stack of around 150 red wine barrels. Oh wow! Yeah, those are scary to do, huh? Yeah, the pyramid stacks. <laughs> we didn't. <laughs> I mean, they work, but it was making me nervous. Um, ours is, I guess, six high. Okay, so it's around 150 barrels, I think. I don't know. It's like thirty-five or so on the bottom, sort of. Yeah, on the bottom row. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, we didn't know if you can stack them that high, mm-hmm. and my brewing partner Mike was sort of emailing other breweries who we admire and who we know do stuff like this. Like he emailed like Jester King and stuff. Like, hey, can we stack barrels that high in a pyramid stack and be confident they're not going to like collapse <laughs> right you know so when we're saying pyramid stack we're t- basically talking about not using barrel racks and like using wedges to hold them in into place uh yeah. to, to make you know just like a, you would any pyramid instead of like stainless racks right 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 right. and when you do that uh what what is it like to go through and taste them are you using using the vinny nail are you going are you able to fill and 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 empty yeah, we in, the, use, in the position that they are? We use the Vinny nail. Um, we also, about an inch off the bottom of the barrel, we put just a, a larger sort of uh, wine bung size okay. stopper in it in order to extract the liquid mm-hmm. um, because we try not to do it from the top. Yeah. Um, so we're filling from the top and we're tasting through all those barrels from a Vinny nail, but then we're pulling from around an inch off the base of the barrel. Um, and not only does that make it easier to extract because we don't really, we don't have like a fancy barrel extractor, you know, um, the uh, bulldog. As yeah. It were. Yeah. Uh, you're also leaving a ton of culture in that barrel, right? But Which will fill doing, directly okay. on top of. Okay. 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 Yeah. Cause you're doing an inch off the bottom and there's enough to, to yeah. leave the, the quote unquote leaves for better. Yeah. Better terms. Um, what's your blending process like from there? Um, it depends on, on, on what we're trying to make in, in the example of Valley beer, which I think provides a a good base beer for what I think that we're sort of known for doing now, which is balancing sort of fruit botanicals and flowers and things and, and hops. 
Um, but that's sort of built on top of a beer like this, which is also balancing three control points, but it's like acid, funk, and like barrel character tannins, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so typically our blending process will be carry out primary in one of the fooders um, or in stainless, uh, and then transfer to either punch-ins or barrels. Um, all of the beers that we're doing are balancing acid from the punch-ins, funk from the barrels, and and barrel character, right, from both. Mm-hmm. Um, the blending process is really just by taste, right? You just mm-hmm. have to taste through all that stuff. We don't really have a established, like, scientific, uh, like, rigorous um, process in that way. It's like we're just making it with our palates. Right. Um, and I, I think when you're doing it that way, you can sort of guarantee that it's going to turn out according to what you think tastes good because, mm-hmm. you know, you're making it according to your own tastes. So tell us more about this beer specifically. So you just, first of all, you just poured it out of a crowler, which mm-hmm. is yeah, one of my favorite. In a yes. One of my favorite vessels right now. And it has a really, I love the label too. So, um, oh, I, yeah. don't, I, think, I don't think I've ever only had your beer on tap. So yeah. Um, so tell us specifically about this beer. Yeah, so Valley Beer is um, fermented with a culture me and Mike have been developing for, I don't know, four or five years now. Uh, it's mixed culture from uh, a number of different plants just growing in the region. Um, Brett from honey, uh, lactic acid bacteria from vegetables, there's sourdough culture in there. Um, we found that in many cases, it's fruit and honey that you get the best sort of yeast cultures from. Uh, and uh, it's from vegetables that you get like the best lactic acid bacteria from. Um, and over the course of many years, those cultures have sort of mingled together, you know, mm-hmm. um, in a way that we haven't really been tracking with a microscope. And, in fact, I think that sort of undermines what should necessarily remain a, a little mysterious, I think, in my in my opinion. I think that if you tinker too much with it, you end up pulling the, the rug out, right, um, the value of the culture. Um, it, it's, in my opinion, I think, way more effective, and you end up with a more compelling product if you're just, like, like I was saying before, applying sort of just as much laboratory rigor as you need to in order to make sure that the beer is like gonna be drinkable and, and um, drinkable and safe yeah, yeah. and and Which safe. It will be naturally yeah yeah and then and then you just and then you and then you blend it to to what your tastes are we certainly i mean like and like any brewer we've we've had to dump barrels before sure um but in our experience we found that the ones that you really want to dump if you hang on to them, they end up being the coolest, you know, barrels. <laughs> um, I hear that a lot. Like, if it tastes weird, just leave it. It'll get better. Yeah. How long, uh, how long have you had the crowler machine? We've had it for, I don't know, maybe two months or so. Okay. Mm-hmm. Wait, wait. I want to go back to this beer first before we talk yeah. crowlers. Okay. So, that, so that's a blend, right? Yeah, this is, this is blended. And then does it have fruit or hops or? No, no. It's, okay. um, I don't think it's any really of delicious. the beers that it's were. It's almost like yeah. a cider. Like yeah. Well, it has a lot of fruit character yeah. or like, yeah. fr- you know, fruity, like esters. It has a lot of yeah. acidity to it, yeah. too. It's a bit like a lemonade. And so I else. think that specifically 
uh, went in, what went into this beer was, so it was, you know, primary and one of the fooders. We split a bunch of that stuff up. Um, it was two of the 500 uh, liter punch-ins, which is, like I said, primarily focused on acid production. Uh, just the, the um, sort of fermentation volume is bigger. It's being kept at a higher temperature. Um, and uh, it's producing like that, that really bright kind of acid character. You know, you could do that in stainless, and many people do. Um, we just think that you end up getting like a rounder sort of more pleasurable and, and I think somewhat yogurty acidity uh, from like sort of acid production in wood. Um, so that's one of the blending components. Another one of the blending components is just pure uh, sort of fooder, like farmhouse fermentation, in which we're not necessarily trying to stack the deck in either direction with regard to acid or funk. Um, and you end up getting um, a, f- a, a farmhouse beer with a, l- a lot of weight and character to it, um, but really is just sort of the... Um, the ground on which you're building the rest of the beer. And then the other component is relatively mature wine barrel aged um, farmhouse beer that is on the funky end of the spectrum. So those are the three components and they were then they were just blended and together. Blend how big a batch is are you like how big a batch was this blend when blended together? I think it was eight barrels. Okay. Um, cool. we have a thirty barrel brew house. The the two fooders are roughly fifteen barrels, and then uh, we have four thirty barrel stainless fermenters. But then we got all these sort of portable and stackable uh, eight barrel Grundy tank things mm-hmm. uh, on the recommendation of Greg from Threes. Yeah. And we went to the brewery one day, and he had all these little tanks there moving around. Yeah. I was like, "What is that?" It's great. <laughs> yeah. But they're they're super convenient though, because especially with us where. You know, we'll blend a bunch of stuff together, and then it's like invariably there's liquid left over that we don't really know what to do with. And you can just put it in one of those tanks, and the next week it's gonna, you know, it's there for you to use. Um, We also use those tanks to condition. So, in the case of like, I don't know if you guys had isosceles or animal balloon or any of those, had animal balloon. Well, there you go. Between the two of us, we've had both. (laughs) We'll use those tanks to to condition a beer like this on. So, like, Valley Beer, I was saying before, is a good starting point for a beer like Animal Balloon, um, which was conditioned on passion fruit, um, lemon balm, and vanilla bean, I think. That's what it says. I could be mixing all that. That's what it says on your website. Yes. Passion fruit, vanilla, Um, lemon balm. We have another one coming out called Flying Colors next week, which is sort of the same idea, right? Like a farmhouse beer that's balancing acid, funk, and barrel character. Um, But then it's conditioned in stainless on raspberry, hibiscus, and orange zest and sort of tastes tastes like sherbet. Yeah. Before we get too too into it, we have to take a break. We're we're smack dab in the middle of the show. You're listening to Men About It uh, with Jason Sinai, and we're going to get talking to you, you, Ayanna. We want to talk talk about trends and what's going on over at Turst. Ooh. Ooh. The Men About (laughs) Yeah. 
Heritage Foods USA is a farm-to-table online butcher and founding sponsor of Heritage Radio Network. Patrick Martins founded Heritage Foods USA in 2002 to save endangered species of livestock from extinction. He learned about the plight of endangered foods while working for Slow Food, a nonprofit started in 1986 in Italy when the first McDonald's opened on the Spanish steppes of Rome. To counter the homogenizing effects of fast food, Slow Food was formed to bring attention to regional cuisines and ingredients. By 2000, Patrick was the president of Slow Foods USA and working on adding heritage breeds to their arc of taste, but he decided to go further than a metaphorical arc and actually do something to preserve rare breeds. That was the moment that Heritage Foods' slogan, Eat Them to Save Them, was born. By creating a market for delicious meats from Heritage Breeds, we can ensure they'll be around for generations to come. Plus, Heritage Breeds just tastes a whole lot better. Learn more at HeritageFoodsUSA.com and use the code HERITAGERADIO for two free pork chops with your first order, brother. Hi, I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past here on Heritage Radio Network. Using food as a lens to observe history and culture, I take you on a weekly journey through different topics of culinary history. Tune in on Thursdays at noon to hear about the history of such topics as American cake, the accidental churning of butter, pho, the Vietnamese soup craze, and so much more. And help us keep this and other heritage programming alive. Go to heritageradionetwork.org and click on the beating heart to donate and continue enjoying great programs. Welcome back to episode 207 of The Men About It on Heritage Radio Network. As you know, this show is only possible thanks to membership or member donations. We would literally not be able to reach you every week without the generosity of Heritage Radio Network members around the world. Uh, and now is your chance to join the club because HRN Summer Membership Drive is back. Becoming a member is super easy, and it comes with limited edition summer swag like t-shirts, drink koozies, and cool pens for your sweet jean jacket. You can sign up for a one-time <laughs> donation or become a monthly sustaining member by visiting heritageradionetwork.org slash donate right now. Let's keep food radio on the airwaves this summer. There are also special events that go on for members only as well. Throughout so the year. Yep, stay tuned for those. And I will say I recently uh, heard this very depressing fact that, what was it, 7% of Americans think that chocolate milk comes from brown cows? It doesn't come from brown cows? No. So that's why we're here at Heritage Radio Network to help educate people about food and beverages. Um, yes. I'm here for the chocolate. My parents literally just told me the effect. Was it on like a it's, television show? It's been on like all the news because it's such an astounding number. Is that, is that fake news? I think like news? 50% I don't of that is like people messing with us being like, oh yeah, of course I think that. And yeah. they don't really. There are other depressing facts. So if you look it up, if you look up chocolate milk brown cows, you will... The Washington Post did actually a pretty good article, and they had some other very depressing facts about food that people didn't know, like they don't know that cheese is made from milk and other things like that. So because a lot of people are out of touch with real food, right? Just like people are out of touch with real beer. <laughs> with real beer, but you know who is in touch with real beer? Ayana, Ayana, I don't know your, I don't know your last name. Uh, Nauer. Nauer. Or if we were in Austria, where my grandfather's from, it would be Knauer. Knauer, Knauer. But... Nower for yeah, all intents and purposes. Well, you have a really interesting gig. Uh, blessed to be working at, at Turst, which is one of our favorite bars in New York City, and they get a lot of really interesting beer and a lot of uh, like generally an appreciative and knowledgeable audience. 
Yeah, yes and I mean, I I mean yes and no. Um, you get a lot of. I mean, we get a ton of like beer tourists. Of course, I think that it's um, you know it's definitely a destination bar for a lot of people. Um, and though Luxus is no longer a restaurant in the back anymore, there's still a lot of um, you know a lot of exposure through having had that restaurant. Um, so we get a lot of beer nerds. Um, and then there's just a lot of people, you know, Friday and Saturday nights are always, uh, you get a whole mix of people. Um, and there's plenty of people who just come in and ask if we have, you know, serve wine and serve liquor and then are very disappointed when we say we only have beer and cider and actually this cider that we have on draft is really sour and you probably, (laughs) this may not be what you're thinking of, but if you like vino verde, it's kind of kind of similar. With those people, have you been able to turn a lot of people on to things that they didn't otherwise like, given the selections that you have? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, if someone really has their heart set on, like, drinking wine... Um, I, I tend to go with either, either a cider. I mean, then we do carry, you know, something like Wolfer Rosé cider, uh, which is always a crowd pleaser, I think, wherever that's served. Um, or maybe I'll direct them towards a sour beer, you know, depending on what we have on draft, especially, you know, if it's something from like Lover Beer, any of the Italian breweries that do stuff with a lot of, um, wine grapes. Um, that's actually a really interesting, um, a situation to be in because you can like turn this person who like only wants to drink wine says they don't drink beer you can actually get them to try this like really complex super crazy sour yeah. beer that otherwise they probably would never know about and i don't think enough brewers are brewing with wine grapes here in the states you got you just did one jason right yeah uh, we did uh i forget Muscat? i forget what we called it oh kinds of light it was <laughs> kinds of light yeah. there's so many beer names man. um yeah so that was fermented um, in an open puncheon with the pressed wine grape skins of uh, Chardonnay grapes Chardonnay. from from White Cliff Vineyard. So, um, what was the percentage of grapes of or of grape must versus barley based? Oh, fermentables. Uh, well, we produced cool. we produced the wort and then knocked out into an open puncheon, uh-huh. um, and there were all, I I think there were like seventy five or a hundred pounds of grapes. Uh, so the the ratio of like sort of grape skins to liquid was pretty high, uh, and then that that liquid was transferred into wine barrels and aged for like eight months or so. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've done that a number of times now. Back when we were at the brew pub, uh, my friend at the time was the tasting room manager of this winery, and I had asked him one day like, "Hey, what do you guys do with the grapes after you after you press them?" And he said that they just put them in the compost pile. So we went there and. Sure enough, there was a massive compost pile with grape skins, <laughs> bees flying around it, and we just took some took some containers and filled them up. Um, awesome. And we didn't really know what to expect, and it ended up turning out really well. Uh, so we've been sort of doing it seasonally as the grapes become available. And real quickly, uh, kinds of light as a beer name. You said recently that you have a kind of a theme to how you're naming beers. Uh, or at least yeah. some, or at least a series of them. It's weird because when we first started out, we had um, an idea that we were going to stick to, and then you realize when you're making, you know, releasing a new beer every week, <laughs> yep. sticking to that theme is really difficult, you know. Um, and also, a lot of the ideas that we had about n- sort of naming and themes for naming um, were like 
sort of purely from the internet. Um, and I think, I, I mean, I think that we've managed to stick to it. Some of the names are from a book uh, called Infinite Jest so by David it. Foster Wallace. Okay. Kinds of Light. Kinds of Light, isn't it? Yeah, isn't So the, the, the father character who ends up killing himself, like, sort of before the uh, events in the book take place by um, sticking his head in a microwave. Um, sorry. <laughs> that's yeah. pretty, that's eight. Uh, Is a filmmaker. And at the end of the book, there's a filmography. And Kinds of Light is uh, the name of one of the films that he had made. Uh-huh. Um, but, yeah. I wanted to ask, Ayana, like, what sort of... Um, fraction of the people who come into the bar are coming there because they had seen it on the internet or because they saw something on Instagram or or they're sitting there with their phones out and are on untapped I'm always because I, I, I also great. I work at proletariat on the weekends mm-hmm. and proletariat it's, it's, is another excellent beer bar in East Village of Manhattan if you yes. haven't been so um, it's weird because it sort of demographic changes on the weekend. We're like proletariats on St. Mark's. And I think that on the weekend, uh, more people are coming in who aren't necessarily like hardcore beer geeks. Uh, whereas during the week, you see a lot more hardcore beer geeks coming in. Not that they yeah. don't come in on the weekend, but it's just a, like a different kind of vibe almost. Sure. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you'll go in there some days and every single person sitting at the bar has their phone out and they're untapping beers. Mm. Um, so I just wonder if What's that's that like over there. Yeah, that, that um, yeah, I mean, we get that also. But again, since I only work on weekends, um, I'm getting that like mixed crowd. Yeah. Um, mixed cultures. Yeah, mixed, mixed cultures. Culture. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then lately, um, this didn't used to happen, but it's something that I think happen- is starting to happen now. And that might have to do with the Internet and the way that beer becomes um, popular, like you know, people come in and they're like, oh, do you have any Grim cans? And if we don't have any, every once in a while that person actually walks out, which is something that I haven't seen. Um, and I've worked at Turst for about a year and a half, almost two years. Um, I hadn't seen that prior to maybe six months ago or so. It wasn't something that I had noticed. Um, where people sort of, I mean, and Grim is an amazing brewery. Um, I work closely with them. Their beer is fantastic. But it's sort of, you know, the people become obsessed, customers become obsessed with this sort of image of a particular beer that they want or need and when you don't have it I don't I don't know, then when that person walks out, it's so strange to me yeah. They're like, like st- we have 21 draft right. lines and we have um, you know I think more, even more so than the draft situation at Torst, like our cellar is unparalleled. Like yeah. no one has a cellar like ours. It's amazing. That's that's because of the internet, though, right? Like I they think see, so. I regardless think so. of what the the brand is, it's like they see on Instagram or something that mm-hmm. this new beer came out, or they and they want to check it in on Untapped, and they're on a mission to do that, right? It's yeah. it's the new purpose they have. And this person can come into a bar and there could be six or seven other beers that are of very similar quality and, and you know, intent um, and style, you know, style wise. And they'll not want those because maybe they've already checked them in. Right. 
the tickers. Um, you guys yeah. are both at bars where, where very much you get to see where, how the internet in, is influencing these trends, yeah. right? Yeah. Although I think you get pretty... much better service at Proletariat than Tourist, from what I remember. Unless Ayana's working. I do actually use Untapped. I don't use Untapped. I just use Untapped to keep track oh, you mean so I can. internet service. Okay. Yeah, internet okay. service. Oh, I was like, oh, that's yeah. cold No, blood. sorry, sorry. That's <laughs> sorry. I meant, I meant internet, internet reception, yes. Yeah. Service is very good at both bars. Thank you. Um, yeah, that's interesting because Speak I... Speak for yourself. Well, we, do, we do have a guest Wi-Fi network. I'll tell uh, you all the password now. It's beer is good, lowercase. And you guys have very good food as well. I have actually haven't only eaten like snacks there since Lux's closed, but you still have a kitchen. Yeah. And the food's gotten really good the reviews lately. The food is lately. amazing. Yeah. Um, we've, so since Lux's closed, uh, the sous chef took over, and he's created this like really dynamic menu. Um, there are some things that stay the same, but a lot of it is just kind of rotating. Um, there's a lot of a focus on seasonal produce. Um, the old bar menu that we had when Luxus was still open didn't change very much. And um, the food was still really good, but I think that it maybe wasn't as exciting for people coming in who weren't trying to have a tasting menu experience, who wanted to actually sit at the bar and drink and have some food, you know, for that menu to be sort of inflexible, maybe. Um, I don't know. I think it's just it's just more dynamic. And yeah, the food is amazing. Um, really, really great stuff coming out of that kitchen right now. Yeah, so I think... Well, Going back to like this whole, you know, people walk out if, if you don't have a certain beer. Like people are not those people are not going for the experience, though, right? They're not going to hang out with their friends or to, you know, just experience. You know, maybe you're visiting in town, and you want to experience a new bar, or just something local. Like I was in Philly last week for work, and and I did actually get a teeny bit of time, and I hit two breweries. That I didn't realize they were so new, but they've opened in the past six months, and it was amazing. Um, but I think people aren't doing that. They're going for, you know, a very specific purpose, which is kind of not my, you know, not my jam. I think it can be disappointing. Like, I think it's good to be open-minded and... Yeah, you know. or you see, like, every once in a while, like, someone will... Three times in my life, I have looked at a Beer Advocate forum <laughs> thread and... Huge it mistake. is very <laughs> yes. It's always no, you read the comments. Mistake. Never read the comments. Yeah, this is my normal. Uh, I normally try to not read comments. But people in New York City, for example, like if there's like this can release or something, there will be a thread where everyone says like, oh, "Okay, this place has a one can limit. This place has a two can limit. Here's how much they're charging. Oh, do they still have it?" And so you know, within this forum, people within the city are just like mapping out exactly like how you can get as many cans of this like limited thing as possible or like who's still selling it. It's very, I don't know. It's super weird. It's a whole nother culture. <laughs> well, I mean, I think, I think that the sort of craft beer culture now is very much informed by internet culture. Yeah. Um, and that like craft beer as a product has really emerged as a product of the internet. Um, and the sort of the characteristics of craft beer as a product are derived and the symptoms of it are derived directly from, like, just Instagram culture, right? Yeah. I, and I think that the two that are the sort of the most obvious are, like, a sort of visual obsession. Um, I think that you see that directly in, like, the rise of Northeast-style double IPA, right? That like, haze, bro. The, where the, the, and all the pretty cans we have now. Well, yeah. I mean, the, the haze is do taken the as a, a visual <laughs> cue for, like, quality and... You know, and and rarity really, right? The hazier it is, the more people on the internet want it. Right. Um, and, but that's a visual. That's a purely visual thing. Right. Right. Um, 
and and then I think also a preference for um, like staggering variation and for what's new, right? And 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 like not really being satisfied with with quality products if they're not new anymore, or if they're not like hot, if they're not you exactly. know if they exactly. don't have the a gazillion thing. Instagrams or a gazillion check you know yeah. check ins on Untapped or whatever you're using. And it yeah. could be you know this this imaginary person right uh, could have had this beer once before and it could be the best beer on the planet but if they walk into a bar and they have a choice between that and another beer which may not be as good but which just came out like the choose the one chances of out. yeah of course yeah. Um, and there's there's nothing wrong with that. I'm just saying that that's we have th- that's the that atmosture ourselves. that we're working we are, in. So, you know? We're yeah. those same people. Yeah. But we're promiscuous drinkers. Yeah, and, and and it puts a different challenge on us as brewers now because Absolutely. we because now we can't just make one thing. But also yeah. that's why we're in it in the first place. I think yeah. a lot of the, the new brewers are. I mean, we're in it because we we are perpetually creative and we we want to be doing newer yeah. things, not necessarily changing the wheel, but at Absolutely. least new for ourselves. And it's a it's a journey that we're. It's so fun to learn and expo- get. A, Exploratory course, within, yeah. and so with that, I still am, I'm going back to where you're you're going into your pungents at 110 degrees uh, and hitting it with with uh, with uh, with your old culture that you've been doing, yeah. and so you're creating that lactic acid, and then you have are you hitting it with anything else at, after that? Or are you letting it sit as that? Are you just getting the lactic acid and then we're we're blending we're blending we're blending it, it. so and then I, when you blend it, is it picking up the other cultures and, and kind of are there, the rest of the sugars being eaten, and then it, does it become stable enough to get into this crowler? Yeah, typically that's, by the, that's the journey. Typically, doing. by the time we start blending <laughs> the farmhouse stuff, it's it's as close to terminal as it's going to get. When you get um, to blending, yeah, mm-hmm. um, the the sort of fruited and hopped and flowered variations are conditioned and stainless to as close to terminal as we can get. Um, and th- this goes back to something that you were saying before. I think that sour, like sort of sour American sour farmhouse beer is perfectly suited to meet the demands of this sort of emerging internet market of constant variation right. for that reason, right? Because we're, we're, we have a number of what I would regard as kind of stable blending components, um, and they're unique but uh, predictable modules to work in, right? Like the acid beer is something that we're relatively comfortable with now. Um, the the funky sort of barrel age stuff is something that by the time we're pulling it out of the barrel, it's as close to terminal as it's going to get. Um, the, the difficulty is when you start blending in like double IPA into that, right? And putting it in a, in a keg and then it gets to the bar and maybe the bar doesn't have refrigeration you know for their keg storage and then by the time it gets on tap it's all foam and we've earlier on like you know when we started doing this in january february we had some issues for sure where there were over carbonated kegs um so now we're trying to work uh with it i guess some people refer to it as kettle souring but i don't think that that's necessarily the right word for it um but like having a sort of stable acid beer that you can use to blend into hoppy beer in order like to have a, a package that's not going to explode right because right? we want to you know we're doing that in crawlers and i think that with a crawler it's, pe- people are going to drink it before it becomes an issue right hopefully um, yeah right so, or not 
Wait, um, I gotta. But, I know you want to know about. Craft. I gotta ask about warp no, production yeah. too. Yeah. So okay. how have you? Have your is your warp production differ depending? I guess differ than if you were making straight up beer. Like. As uh, far as any type of brewing technique. Not really. I mean, we use a lot of raw grain. We use a lot of raw uh, wheat. Uh, we use a lot of both flaked and malted oat. Um, and. Other than the sour farmhouse stuff, we're really just making IPA, and that's the same thing. It's like, you know, 50% of the grain bill is uh, raw wheat and oat. Yeah, um, so you're not differing. So like, your your wort production is not differing from your IPAs than, you know, what's in, what you know not, is going not into... Not in any significant... We're not yeah. doing, like, turbid meshing. Okay. okay, and you're not mashing higher to... For, to yeah, I mean, it, it depends. Uh, typically, I just like mashing higher anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, even for, you know, with Northeast IPA, you're... You're meshing you over 150. Right. Um, I, I guess with farmhouse beer, we, we mesh lower. Typically, it's like below 150, um, sometimes significantly lower than that, 145 below. Um, and I think that that will have uh, certain like effects, like in a, in in, uh, in a product that's been aged in barrels for a long period of time. Typically, it seems kind of thin. Mm-hmm. Um, because those starches and sugars are no longer there, but we just blend in body with fresher farmhouse beer. Right. You know, um, that's the thing. I mean, I, typically, I think really mature, like barrel aged sour farmhouse stuff lacks body. Um, there's a ton of acid and funk, but I don't think that that would work. Like, if you were to serve that on its own, I, I wouldn't be satisfied with that. Um, but I think again, that's what's so special about this like style of beer and the process by which it's made is that you're starting off with I think what would be regarded as relatively like simple blending components, but you're able to achieve like this sort of complex articulation of acid and funk and barrel character and late end hop, but just by blending, you know. Yeah. Um, so the, the the pieces are simple, but they end up contributing to. Uh, like a, 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 a much more compelling whole. And that, I mean, that's true of mixed culture fermentation in general, you know? And do you, have you also found that, um, that your beers are kind of have a particular character because you're using, you know, your own. Yeah, for sure. I, I think that our sort of house character, you would call it, um, has been developing for a period of time since we were back at the brew pub in New Paltz. It was called Bacchus. Um, and we've re- we've held on to that culture for that period of time, you know, and it's unique to us. It's not, you know, uh, like mixed culture that we bought from White Labs. Right. Um, and so it started out unique, but over the course of many years, those microbes have been interacting with each other in a hundred different fermentation zones and in different ways and they affect each other on on like a chemical level over time you know um and even just like will in producing one batch of beer say we ferment it in the fooder and then we fill 15 wine barrels with it in each of those wine barrels even though you're starting with the same culture, you're going to end up with, I think, a noticeably different product just based on micro environment. You know, mm-hmm. like it could be one temperature, like one degree Fahrenheit 
off from the barrel next to it, and it's going to develop differently. Um, they're single cell organisms. They're super um, like sensitive to really small changes in temperature and environment and oxygen level and you know all those things. Um, so yeah, I think that we have like a sort of house character for the fermentation, but I think generally the house the house character is, for us is more defined by um, a preference toward balance and not it being too extreme in one way or the other, and that's achieved through blending. Yeah. Your, the character of your beers to me have always been pillowy. Like when, yeah, when I get in my mouth there, they have this like soft pillowy. The carbonation yeah. is beautiful. The, the acidity, that balance, I, I really, really appreciate you. your beers and find them inspiring. And I, yeah. I want to be like you, Jason. <laughs> and, uh, and Ayana, I want to be like you too. I want to work at Turst on the weekends. and, and got to uh, get a lot more tattoos. Thing. I need more tattoos. It's true. It's true. Um, how do sour beers move at Terst? What? How many? How many lines generally are a percentage of twenty beers are? Um, that varies. It'll be, I think, anywhere from like, I would say it's normally around three, but you know, give or take. I mean, we always have more than one, but sometimes it'll get up to five. Um, and there are a lot of people who come in and are just like, what sour beers do you have? Mm -hmm. Um, That's a pretty, like, standard question that I overhear at Proletariat also. Um, Just as common, really, as someone coming in and saying, like, what IPAs do you have? But I wonder, I I don't know if sour beer has taken off in the way that maybe people imagined it to have taken off in the last couple of years. I don't know what you guys think about that. What do you mean? I mean, I, I feel like it was being characterized the, the as new the idea. next thing. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm just not sure that it has become popular as maybe people imagined. It. I mean, Sierra Nevada made Otrevez a year-round True. beer, and that started off as a one-off or as a seasonal. Yeah. Um, and Sally. pretty much every major brewery, every like major craft brewery now has a sour beer. And I think yeah. that people are buying those. You know, yeah, those are year-round so. products. Somebody said this, or but, talking about this yeah. the other day, kind of echoing what you were saying, Jason, but I, I disagree because I think what happened basically is, is now that since it's around so much and it did take off, it, the chatter on it has, has died mm. down because we've taken it for granted. We've taken this it's for It's just accepted a as a normal style yeah. of beer now. Which is cool. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I think that, I mean, I think that as a sort of, uh, producers in the United States, we have a, still a good deal of work to do to make sour beer um, like understandable and palatable to a wider audience. You know, um, yeah, I, I completely agree. As it, it definitely is taking off. We do see like every brewery is kind of doing a yeah. sour beer, but they're doing a sour beer, yeah. uh, just kind of to go along with the trend. Uh, we don't see a lot like Cousin Valley. We're doing a lot of sour beers and like really trying to make something different of it. Yeah. We're also, I mean, we're trying to make it, I think the, the, the purpose is, is twofold. Like we're trying to make it as just on its face, as pleasurable a drinking experience as possible. And that has to do with balance and blending. You know, it's not, it's not insanely sour. It's not super duper funky. It's, it's a very well balanced and pleasurable product to drink. But at the same time, we're trying to make it sort of as intensely like complex in terms of like the way it's conceived and, and the ingredients that are being used. 
Um, so it's it's both heady and and like a, a beer geek can really spend a lot of time getting into the process and all that. But then you can also give it to any person, and I think that they would like it. I agree. If we want to know more about it, how do we find out? Um, do you mean as far as our website and stuff sure. like that? Yeah, you could just Anything. go to HudsonValleyBrewery.com uh, or just follow us on Instagram. It's at Hudson Valley Brewery. And if we wanted to meet you and hound you, what days are you at Proletariat? Um, I am at Proletariat. <laughs> How can we stock you? I'm at How Proletari- can our listeners stock you? <laughs> I'm there on Saturdays, uh, basically from open to close. Right on. Um, and then the, the tasting room up at the brewery is, is open Friday through Sunday. Uh, also, I should probably plug, we're doing a, so we made two double dry hopped Northeast style double IPAs, right um, and we put them in cans and we're going to be releasing them this Saturday. Exciting. Uh, come, wait, no, I'm sorry. What's Next today? Saturday. What's today? July 2nd. Wait. What's today? Today is the 19th. Wait, is it oh, this yeah. Saturday? Oh yeah, so this Saturday coming up. Oh my goodness. Yeah. The 25th? June 24th. I think it's 24th. the 24th. Sorry. Yeah. June 24th at, at noon. We right. all know what day of the week it is right now. <laughs> Clearly. There's, so There's someone in the room is supposed yeah. to know, right? <laughs> well, dude, thank you so much for joining us. Thank really, you for really appreciate us. it. Uh, both of you. Let's go eat some yeah. Roberta's Pizza Sweet. in uh, 261 Moore Street, Brooklyn, Bushwick. Foment about it. Foment about it. Foment about it. <laughs> for listening to heritage radio network food radio supported by you for our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events subscribe to our newsletter enter your email at the bottom of our website heritageradionetwork.org connect with us on facebook instagram and twitter at heritage underscore radio heritage radio network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better fairer more delicious place and we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community rate the shows you like tell your friends and please join our community by becoming a member just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. thanks for listening Fresh Pickings is a podcast by Heritage Radio Network, presented by Bob's Red Mill. Love learning about food? Get more superfood for your brain with the featured podcast miniseries, Fresh Pickings. Go to bobsredmill.com slash freshpickings. Today on Fresh Pickings, we're taking a look at a trend that's old as time, paleo. The Paleolithic diet is a nutritional program based on foods available to humans living in that era. The idea was introduced in 1975 and was popularized by Lauren Cordain in his 2002 book, The Paleo Diet. In 2012, the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics described paleo as one of the latest trends in diets, and in 2013, it was Google's most searched weight loss method. On this episode, we'll talk to Harry Rosenblum, host of Feast Your Ears, about the paleo diet, paleo foods, and paleo flowers. Then, Krista Margies, a baker from Charlotte, North Carolina, will share a paleo flower recipe with us. I'm your host, Kat Johnson. Welcome to Fresh Pickings.
Humans have been on Earth for some 2 million years. For 99% of this period, they have lived as hunter-gatherers. Of the estimated 80 billion people who have ever lived on Earth, more than 90% have foraged for all of their food. Only in the last 11,000 years or so have humans begun to domesticate plants and animals. And now, gathering or foraging is totally cool again. Have you ever gone foraging, Kat? This is Kathy Irway, host of Eat Your Words. She also runs a blog called Not Eating Out in New York. I have, actually. I went morel foraging in Georgia a couple years ago, but I don't think I'm as experienced as you. Oh, well, I love to forage. I mean, I just picked some spring onions the other day in the park. I've been on a few tours around the city, and uh, I just love to create recipes from whatever I find. You go foraging in New York City? Yeah, there's some like great foraging tours. Wild Man Steve Brill hosts some. But, you know, you can go find a lot of things. So which park do you go foraging in? Well, I live right by Prospect Park, which is like a gold mine for foraging. And the woods are actually pretty well protected, and you can really forget that you're in Brooklyn sometimes. Hey, Kat, what do you think of when I say paleo? I'm talking with Harry Rosenblum, host of Feast Your Ears here on Heritage Radio Network. Harry is also the co-owner of The Brooklyn Kitchen, a cooking store in Williamsburg. Well, when I hear the word paleo, I think about cavemen. Yeah, you're not far off. I mean, I was talking more about the paleo diet, which, you know, it's an approach that is the idea that humans evolved to eat certain foods. And when we transitioned from hunter-gatherers into sort of a settled, more agricultural lifestyle, that our foods became overly processed. And the paleo diet avoids those processed foods. So what foods are we talking about that are in the paleo diet? There's a lot of variability uh, in the way that the diet is interpreted, but typically when people talk about the paleo diet, it includes vegetables, fruits, nuts, roots, meat, as well as organ meats, uh, really using all of the animal. And it usually excludes things that humans came to consume later, like coffee, alcohol, processed oils, salt, sugar, dairy, legumes, and sadly, grains. Okay, grains. So does that mean that on the paleo diet, you can't have flour? That's correct. You can't have flour that comes from grains like wheat. But thankfully, it's really easy now to make baked goods with flour alternatives. There's been a lot of flour alternatives that have been developed. And if you're following the paleo diet, you can use substitutes, nut flours, root starches that are being blended to create things like paleo pizza, pancakes, cookies, and more. Okay, that sounds a whole lot better. I think I could follow a diet if I could still have pizza and cookies. They're some of my favorite foods. But how do you know so much about the paleo diet anyway? I don't follow the diet myself, but I've spent some time sort of learning about it. I've had some great guests on Feast Your Ears to talk about it. And last year, in episode 19, I interviewed Samir Patel, who's a science journalist, photographer, and editor based here in Brooklyn. He's the deputy editor at Archaeology Magazine, and he had a lot to say about how early humans ate and how that relates to the paleo diet. So, Harry, why do people choose to eat paleo now? Well, the paleo diet follows similar foods to those eaten by our earliest ancestors. And if you think about the entirety of human history, the modern age is actually very small. And humans evolved for a very long time before we became settled, you know, and started farming. So the idea is that if you follow those nutritional guidelines, you're putting your diet more in line with the evolutionary pressures that shaped our genetics. And that makes our bodies happy. It definitely does sound like a very healthy way to eat. 
So do you sell paleo-friendly products at the Brooklyn Kitchen? Absolutely, we sure do. There's no doubt that fruit and veggies and lean proteins are great for your body, and we promote cooking with real ingredients. The available scientific data about it shows that eating this way can lead to improvements in body composition, metabolic effects, compared to a typical modern Western diet, which tends to include a lot of processed foods. If you cut out all that junk and focus on fresh, real food, it can certainly help your body. Are there any downfalls to the paleo diet besides not having coffee and beer, which are two big ones? Well, I don't think I could follow it because I definitely need coffee. Beer, I suppose I could live without, but probably not coffee. Um, One of the main things is it can be tough to get adequate calcium intake on the paleo diet, so you have to sort of be careful for that. Humans have adapted nutritionally over time, and we do need to remember that our digestive abilities are not exactly the same as those of paleolithic humans. We've changed along with our diet in the modern world. Some critics take issue with the whole premise of the diet, but there are a lot of proponents of it. I think if I was transported back to Paleolithic times, the food I would miss the most would be chocolate cake. I love chocolate cake. But luckily, if I decided to go paleo, Bob's Red Mill's paleo baking flour would allow me to still eat all the cake I wanted with no worries. I mean, as long as we're not also counting calories. So to find the perfect paleo chocolate cake recipe, I enlisted Krista Margies from Charlotte, North Carolina. Okay, Krista, tell me a little bit about how you got into baking. I've been baking pretty much all of my life, but I went to school almost 10 years ago specifically for baking and pastry and just went out into the world with it. And I worked in several restaurants, and now I am teaching others at the Art Institute of Charlotte. Great. And before that, you worked at a donut shop. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I did. It's a gourmet donut shop in Charlotte. Everything is made from scratch, and everything is locally sourced and totally fresh. So, of course, naturally, we would, you know, we listen to the customers. And we had a few gluten-free customers, so we developed a recipe, a gluten-free recipe specifically for them. And what was that recipe? It was using Bob's one-to-one, which is a series of uh, starch flours, plus the addition of xanthan gum, because, you know, when you don't use wheat, you don't have that gluten production, so you need something to bind it with. So Bob's Red Mill had that already completely made for you. This is Kat jumping in. I just wanted to mention that Bob's one-to-one flour is not the same as their paleo baking flour, which we will get to shortly. So it was, it was Bob, that, and, you know, everything else, the eggs and the fat and the spice. (laughs) Awesome. So you um, worked on a recipe for this episode and you picked up some paleo flour to work with. Can you tell me a little bit about using that? Yes, definitely. With baking, It's really easy to just subtract gluten out of baking just by incorporating air using your eggs. When you whip eggs for five, ten minutes, it doubles and triples in size. So you have that frothy rise. So when you add something that doesn't have gluten to it, it doesn't really matter because you've already got it puffed up. 
Awesome. So tell me a little bit more about the recipe that you're including in this episode. It's a very simple recipe. It's called chocolate fondant. It's essentially chocolate lava cake. Really what it is is eggs whipped to that double frothy goodness and melted chocolate, a little bit of coconut oil for that fat texture, and the paleo baking flour. Perfect. So for anyone else who's trying to kind of experiment with recipes using paleo flour as a replacement for traditional flour, do you have any other tips other than, you know, making sure you're whipping the eggs more? You can do it also with egg whites. Obviously, you create a meringue, you get that rise. Um, But really, baking powder, baking soda. Great. Thanks to Krista for sharing her tips for using paleo baking flour. You can find her recipe at bobsredmill.com slash fresh pickings. Well, that's our show. Be sure to check out bobsredmill.com slash fresh pickings for more of our favorite ingredients, delicious recipes, and great coupon offers. Join us next week for more fresh pickings brought to you by Bob's Red Mill. Bob's Red Mill is a believer in good food for all. I'm Kat Johnson. Thanks for joining us.